May all our days bring glory to your name, the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is in his name we pray and offer our prayers and our praises this morning. O Lord, do bless the church. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's open the book of Romans once again. The book of Romans. I'm really in chapter 6, but I thought where I had um, disappeared for a while that I go back and review a little bit. So let's go back in the text just a bit into chapter 5. And I'll begin at verse 15 and just pay very close attention to the emphases that the apostle is celebrating in these verses. And indeed, it is a celebration. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one man, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through the Lord, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer. Amen. O Lord, open to us the deep truths of this, your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Here the Apostle Paul has run himself aground. Seems he's a little concerned that you're getting the wrong idea about all this free gift stuff. It's clear from the question that the Apostle Paul poses that he knows that he has just spent the better part of five chapters of his epistle proclaiming a very great but dangerous doctrine. It's a dangerous doctrine. When you think about it, it could be taken, and it has been taken, to all sorts of bad places. But if we continue in the logic of it, if we corral ourselves in on the one side by Paul's teaching and on the other side by his teaching, we'll find the truth of it right up the center of what he's talking about. He knows that his argument's in peril. It's affronted on the one side by the threat of antinomianism. Just by the name, you know it's a bad thing. Antinomianism. And on the other, by perfectionism. You know about perfectionism? I'll talk about it this morning. And both are wrong ideas. 
both are detrimental to a true biblical understanding of justification. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Is that where all this teaching has led us? Shall we sin that grace may abound? And what's he doing? He's anticipating what the hearers of these teachings might come to the conclusion of. If everything's a gift, if everything's a free gift, did you count how many times he said gift and free gift? I'm going to go through that piece by piece so that you don't forget. He talks about this free gift. You've preached the gospel to people. And they, and they actually say, they might not say it exactly like this, they might say something to the effect that, well, why don't I just keep sinning then? Why not sin? If that's the theater into which grace does its great work. Sin that grace may abound? And so he asks this question. Is that where all his teaching is led? Is the apostle vying for more and more sin that we may experience more and more grace? Friends, I know you don't believe that, but I want to tell you, there are many Christians who do. And sermons like these and teachings like these from Paul are for them. And of course, in the first century in the Roman church, there were many Jews who might have come to that conclusion, you see. All their lives, they had the law, and they thought if they followed the law, that their obedience would save them. And they were wrong. The law was good. It wasn't evil. The law had a righteous purpose in God's plan, and that was to convict you of sin so that you would turn in faith to the Savior. And that was its purpose. But the law was still the standard of righteousness, and that never goes away. And I want to parse through that with you this morning. The law is not our enemy. It is our schoolmaster that it may lead us to Christ, he said to the Galatians. Do you remember that? The law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. I'm going to digress a bit here because I like this schoolmaster idea. The schoolmaster, it's not the taskmaster, it's the schoolmaster. The schoolmaster is a good guy, right? The word in Greek is paedagogos, great word, huh? We use the word pedagogue. We talk about a teacher. A teacher is a pedagogue, a paedagogos. And in the greater first century uh, let's say, upper-class families, there would have been a schoolmaster, a paedagogos in the family, all right? And so here you have the sons, the son of the family, of the patriarch. And the son is the heir of all that the father has. But the teacher comes in, and the teacher is maybe a trusted and educated slave, right? The paedagogos is part of the household. Maybe he's a slave. Maybe he's just a hired person to, to teach the school lessons to the young uh, students in, a, in, the, in the wealthier homes. And that's the word Paul uses to describe the law. The law wasn't bad. It just lived its usefulness and then wasn't useful. And so he says, <clears throat> we don't hate the schoolmaster, but, the, but the, the law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And so the schoolmaster leads you to the side of Christ and his prominence disappears. But everything that he taught you was correct. You see what I mean? It was still correct. It would never have got you saved. It wouldn't have earned you the inheritance. The inheritance is yours by birth. You see the illustration that it gives here. And so let's do some review about this. Let's go all the way back to the beginning verses of the book of Romans. 
in chapter 1 where he states the magnificence of his gospel. He declares his complete willingness to proclaim it in all of its wonder and its beauty. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So this whole concept of justification comes at the very beginning. How is a man justified before God? Paul goes on to point out the absolute abomination that mankind has become. I talk about a Romans 1 world. Friends, the world is a Roman 1 world. It's always been. It's always under some level of Romans 1 thinking, of depraved thinking. It's always there. There are times in history when it seems more pronounced, and I suggest to you we are in one of those times. People are not wise in the things that they say. We're confused about the most simple things in the universe, and the people that are most confused are considered the most wise. They're called the woke today. They don't even know the difference between a man and a woman. How do you teach someone when the simple observations of life, you would need no one to teach you that, and now you don't know one from the other? We are definitely in a Romans 1 world. There's no question. And there's so many other examples of it that I could give you. The great creator that Paul um, portrays in Romans 1 is an angry God. He's angry with his beloved and his wrath hangs over the world like thunderclouds over an angry sea. And so he writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The Lord is not happy with suppression of truth. And then he writes, they knew God, but did not glorify him as God. That's the ultimate rebellion. John said the same thing in the first chapter of his epistle when he said that was the true light that gave light to every man coming into the world. Every man coming into the world has something of the light of Christ in him, and he must turn and willfully reject it. He knew God, but does not glorify him as God. He is an intruder in my life, and his law I despise. That's where humanity stands. They knew God, but did not glorify him as God, but became futile in their thoughts. Even their thoughts went the way of Cain. Even their thoughts went the way of sin and perversion. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, foolish thoughts will darken a foolish heart. Meaning, it's not receptive to light anymore. Very difficult to preach the gospel today uh, um, uh, in society, it seems to me. We've built our whole world on the idea that there is no God, that, there is, that sin is a myth for quaint little religious people like us. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. A sure sign of mass confusion is a growing number of experts. I quote from Richard Friesley this morning. Dr. Friesley. Actually, I'm quoting myself. A sure sign of mass confusion is a growing number of experts. You turn on the news at night, there's three heads. Not too bad, but when they have nine heads, you know it's confusion. You just know it's confusion. We don't need that much expertise to get through our day. It's not that complicated, friends. 
You spend too much money, you got to pay it back. I mean, these things are not difficult, but the feudal mind, the depraved mind can't reason it. And so professing to be wise, they became fools. And then what's God's reaction? God gave them up to uncleanness. I laugh at your calamity, Solomon writes. God, uh, these, are, these are quotations. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. You want to act unclean? I'm going to give you over to uncleanness. See how that works for you. God gave them up to vile passions. You want to entertain vile passions instead of good and holy and wholesome passions? I give you up to vile passions. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. You want to play around with things that are not fitting? Let it be your whole life. No more access to grace. God gave them up, it says. Man was not only vile and rebellious, but he was completely unable to find his way back or, friends, to even know there was a way back. He couldn't see it. Back into the grace that was intended initially by the Lord, their creator. So the apostle went on to teach the depravity of man. Friends, what's the depravity of man? It's the nature of man. Man is naturally depraved. He's born that way. Trust me, young people, with your young children. The first two words they will learn will be no and me. I have it, I have it on experience. Maybe they'll say da-da once or twice, but no and me are going to be in there. <clears throat> What's that? Yeah, mine. <laughs> Put three of them together and you'll find out that it's all about mine. The apostle went on to teach the depravity of man. It starts right in, you're born into it. You're born, you're sons of Adam. Adam was dead. He, he, he can't give life. He can only impart death. Even the Jews... Those who were chosen to bear the oracles of God fell under his wrath being disobedient. Others were disobedient through ignorance. The chosen people were openly and knowingly and willingly disobedient to the written statutes of an omnipotent creator. He wrote it down. (laughs) He didn't just say it on the mountain and leave. He wrote it down. You had it before you in print. You can't claim ignorance. If you turned away from that, It was willingly. Through the sin of the first man, every other person ever born inherited that same curse. Creation, which was given to serve man. Remember in the garden, creation was there to serve man. Man would now become, or rather, creation would now become an enemy of man that would constantly need to be subdued. Every time we see a tornado wipe out a town, or a hurricane, wipe out a, a province, right? Or floods come. Did you see that flood, Yosemite? I'm sorry, Yellowstone. That whole um, building just got washed away. Float, it looked like the ark floating down. Did you see it? It was amazing. Every time you see that, what do you say? It's an act of God. And you don't have to be a Christian to say that. Insurance companies say that. It's right in their documents. Not responsible for acts of God. Suddenly you believe in God. I don't think God would charge me as much as you're charging me. (laughs) Friends, through the sin of the first man, every other person ever born inherited that same curse. Creation became the enemy of man. And the heirs of Adam's sin found themselves to be completely impotent to return to the garden of grace. Not to mention a couple of cherubs with flaming swords guarding the entrance. And so the apostle writes of it. Chapter 3, he said, There is none righteous. No, not one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Oh, I'm seeking after God. I don't know. Paul says you're not. Paul says you're not seeking after God. You're seeking after some man-centered prize at the end of the rainbow. No one seeks after God. They've all turned aside. And so Paul reiterates the condition of man, and it is helpless. He cannot help himself. Even the law of God was found impotent to save him. The Jews thought the law might save him. We have it in our hands. We know that whatever the law says, Paul wrote, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There's the purpose of the law, to convict you of sin, to to make sure you know that you're guilty before God. It did its function, but it couldn't save Therefore, by the deeds of the law, Paul wrote, no flesh will be justified. That's for the Jews, friends. You have the law, but it can't save you. It was never intended to. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the the rebellion of Adam and Eve. They received the knowledge of sin, right? That's all it did. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he gives us this wonderful little insertion. But now, he says, remember, he kept saying it, but now things will be different. But now help has come. It has come from the only place that could offer it, from the very throne of God and of his grace. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. The law has no inherent righteousness in it. It can't impart righteousness, but God can. And the law was witnessed by the law and the prophets. Meaning what? Meaning it was intended. Meaning it was inspired. Meaning it was a good thing. Meaning it was a schoolmaster to lead you to Christ. And that was its purpose. Let it do that. Even the righteousness of God was spoken about in the law. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And so all the while the gospel message was there contained in the law. Letting you know that it was only faith in the Savior that could save. And so we find that what the law could not do, faith did. That's that free gift that the apostles pounding home into our consciousness. The faith of Abraham to believe God was accounted to the believer for righteousness. And so he asks a question at this juncture, a foreshadowing of today's question. Paul asks in chapter 3, do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, faith came, does that mean The law has no purpose anymore? He says, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, the law fulfilled its greatest purpose. It led us to Christ after all. The law was the standard, friends. It was never meant to save. It was only meant to convict, and it accomplished that. And so the great chapter 4 begins the tour of justification by faith. And so we read this, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You know, we like to say Abraham is the father of the three great religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. He's the father of us all. He's the father of all who have faith, right? And so the um, great chapter 4 teaches us the beginnings of the process and the nature of justification. Friends, here's the thing about justification that we have to get a hold of in order to move on and unpack these verses properly. 
Justification is a thing done to us from outside us. We don't conjure it up by trusting in our heart. Oh, follow your heart. You'll be fine. It could never be a thing that man accomplished for himself. It was thoroughly and completely a gift from God to his beloved, which we'll find later. We're singled out for the blessing before the foundation of the world, which he'll deal with when he gets to chapters 8, 9, and 10. We were singled out by a God who sees all things and knows all things, the end from the beginning, because he's ordained all things to come to pass. These are the doctrines that Paul is unfolding for us in this epistle. And so rather than make you take notes this morning, I took the notes for you. If you look on page three, you follow along in your notes. And I've even emboldened the things I want you to pick out this morning. All right? So here we go. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ, through whom, through one man's Righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was six times he's talked about justification as a gift. Let it sink in. It's a gift. You couldn't earn it. It's unearnable. You couldn't deserve it. It's undeservable. All gifts should be. When you give gifts to your children, it's because you love them, right? They didn't earn that gift. In fact, maybe they didn't deserve it at all. And so he asks, after all this talk of the free gift, after all this gift-giving of justification... He wonders if maybe we've gotten the wrong idea. And so he asks, what shall we say then? In other words, he knows what he's led us up to. He knows that someone will bring it out. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He's afraid that someone will go there, so he deals with it. He brings it right front and center. He knew his argument would bring him to this place. And now he's going to deal with the objection. All good salesmen bring up the objection before the client brings it up. You let him know you know that's an objection. You're already rehearsed to deal with that. And he ought to still buy the product. Paul knows that the doctrine he has taught is fraught with peril. He's led us to the place where the discerning listener is corralled into this controversial but seemingly inescapable conclusion. He heralds the message of Christ's sacrifice in this majestic iteration of gospel truth, and he preaches it as if from the housetops, and he proclaims where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. What will you conclude from that, he asks. I've told you repeatedly, friends, the doctrine of justification is a dangerous thing. It is an explosive reality. Well, how do we say it? 
How do we talk about explosive realities? We say, it blows my mind. It ought to blow your mind that with all the sinning that mankind has done, the love of God still pierced through and gave the free gift of justification. It blows your mind. And so all our lives we've been careful. Maybe we've been too careful in positing the truth of it. We're afraid that if we stress the truth of grace too intently, the hearers of our gospel will get the wrong idea. And they'll think, well, why don't I just keep sinning if my sin can't keep me from Christ? Why don't I? You've had people say that, haven't you? Well, why wouldn't I just sin then? If we dwell too much on the free gift aspect of grace and its resultant benefits, not the least of which is eternal life, that the hearer will revel in his sin, waiting and hoping for grace to abound. And he'll feel he's gotten over on God. Or worse, the preacher will be accused of encouraging lives of abounding sin. Has that ever happened to you? I must say, it's a possibility. It's indeed a great fear, and it's obviously on Paul's mind as he was the first to anticipate such a misunderstanding. I should say also that it's a great misfortune if the hearers of our gospel hear of the free gift of abounding grace and take it as a license to sin. Wouldn't that be terrible? Have you ever had a Christian argue that very thing to you? I have. You point out their sin to them, and they say, I'm saved by grace. My sin has nothing to do with it. But you're continuing in sin, and they defend the sin as though I'm breaking down the gospel by saying that, by saying that your salvation should have made you a more discerning and better person. And they miss that aspect of it. And Paul knows that can happen. <clears throat> We're always wary of the possibility of our message inviting the heretical doctrine of antinomianism into the conversation. And so let me turn to antinomianism for a moment so that we're all apprised of this monstrous conclusion of those who lose their way in Paul's reasoning. That's what Calvin calls it, a monstrous conclusion. To say it simply, what is antinomianism? I, I hope you've heard of, the, of antinomianism. Antinomianism is the belief in the Christian life that there's no room for the law of God. All right? Anti means against, right? And nomos means law. Antinomian literally means against the law, all right? And the suggestion anticipated by Paul is that there would always be someone present who would make the argument that to be a good Christian and to expect good things and to receive the gift of grace in abundance, he must continue to sin as fodder for ensuing grace. The more I sin, the more grace will abound. The law is seen by the antinomian as a stumbling block in the way of grace. The law's there to warn you, that's sin, don't do it. But I don't need that. I'd rather sin so that grace may abound. You see the perversion that happens when it's preached correctly, I'm talking about. Paul preached it correctly. And still he's concerned we can come to that abominable conclusion. So it's to be reckoned, the law is to be reckoned in the mind of the antinomian as an abominable evil itself. It's the law that's evil. And so Paul anticipates such a conclusion with the words, what shall we say then? Why would he say that? Why would he say, what shall we say then? And then give, and then anticipate that wrong conclusion. It seems the question is as inevitable as it is monstrous. Shall we sin that grace may abound? And now he's going to show us that it's the wrong question to ask. 
but it still gets asked because it is somewhat of a logical progression. Since sin and the sinful lives of men are the theater into which grace acts, the theater into which grace acts out its greatest work, why not just fertilize that field with even greater and greater sins so as to inspire greater and greater works of abounding grace? I'll say to you two things at this juncture. First, I'll say what ought to be obvious to anyone who's followed the logic of Paul's first four chapters of Romans, and that is that the believer is not saved in order that he may freely sin. You know, when we speak of Christian liberty, and it's a whole other subject, and I have taught on it, and I probably should again, and we get to it in the end of Romans, uh, towards Romans uh, 14. Christian liberty, we have to understand the nature of man. Christian liberty isn't a license to sin. It's the power not to. You see, the unbeliever does not have liberty to not sin. Even when the unbeliever does wonderfully good works, relatively good works, what did Isaiah say very famously? Even my righteousnesses are as filthy rags to God. A dead, rebellious man, son of Adam, cannot give a proper offering to God. He has to be remade first. So the question is simply just the wrong question. It's a logical progression that some might get there, and Paul anticipates it, but he's going to give us another question that we ought to be asking, and we'll get to it. So the believer's not saved in order that he may freely sin, but rather he's saved out of the realm of sin. He's become an entirely new creature to whom acts of sin should be altogether distasteful. Do you remember when the things you used to do became really distasteful to you because you knew they offended God? And in your very substance, it, it, you recoiled at the thought of continuing in that. Your nature had changed, you see. It isn't just a philosophical conclusion you reached. Your nature had changed. I've always told you that you're saved into something, right? You're saved out of something, and you're saved into something. What are you saved into? Well, you're saved into the grace of God. That's what the whole idea of consecration. We think, oh, it means to wash and make holy. It means to set apart for holy use, for God's use, right? You're consecrated. You're set apart for God's use. You're saved into the grace of God. And the other great thing you're saved into, you're saved into the church. Don't try being a Christian without a church. That is not safe. It's not wise. And there's every indication that the person that does it is not saved. So you're saved into the church. You're saved out of, as Peter said, this crooked and perverse generation. And you've been saved out of something. What have you been saved out of? You've been saved out of the realm, the reign, and the rule of sin. Sin's still out there. The realm is still out there. But it cannot rule you. You're not subject to it anymore. You're a free man. He who sins is the slave of sin. That isn't us. I'll get to it. And so that's the first conclusion of faith in the heart and mind of the true believer. The second conclusion is, conclusion rather, is the, the one that we feared. Though we have followed the apostles' reasoning, and I think we followed it rightly and intelligently, there would be others who would not make all the necessary connections between law and grace, would they? Or sin and Christian liberty. And so we feel that if we preach the gospel inaccurately will lead our hearers to this erroneous and diabolical conclusion. And so we tend to over-qualify. 
the free aspect of grace. We want to just keep qualifying it and, and maybe t- take away, excuse me, take away from the free aspect that Paul heralds over and over again six times in one paragraph. Well, let me get rid of that fear for you this morning. This is what I mean when I say that justification is a dangerous doctrine. And I should add for you that every doctrine of the faith is a dangerous thing when misused or misunderstood. Every doctrine is dangerous. If your preaching of the gospel has not led some to this place, perhaps you were too careful in your presentation. I don't think we're going to say the Apostle Paul preached the gospel improperly or wrongly or didn't qualify enough, and it led him to this place to ask this question. Why wouldn't it lead us if we preached properly? So if you're preaching the gospel properly, it could very well lead to this very place. Perhaps in trying to make certain that you did not give place to antinomianism, you allowed a place for works in your presentation, right? Didn't stress the free gift aspect of it as Paul did. Perhaps you fell the other way and gave the impression in some subtle way that our justification was meritorious and not purely the free gift of God that Paul says it is. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean by this that when we believed, we made ourselves candidates for baptism, right? That's what we do. Was that simply a decision on our part? Was it as if we had said, I'm finished with this life of sin. I want a new life free of sin. Therefore, I'll submit to the cleansing waters of baptism. That's what the baptism candidate should say, right? But it's as if the candidate for baptism was saying, I renounce my old sins. I want nothing more to do with them. And I would certainly have to admit that that's the proper posture for the new believer. We must renounce our old lives and our old sins. However, when our presentation of the gospel gives this emphasis, it makes the whole process seemingly a whole lot more dependent on what we did than on what the Lord did to us. You see, justification by faith, as Paul has been arguing for it, is a thing done on behalf of the sinner by an outside party, rather than what the sinner did for himself as a free agent. Friends, the sinner isn't a free agent. We just discussed it. He's not able to do righteous works before God. His nature does not allow it. He needs a new nature. Something has to happen to him. He didn't decide to be born, and he can't decide to be born again. That's God's decision. And Paul's epistle will lead inevitably to that truth, and it's called election. And without it, friends, there is simply no gospel. You see, justification by faith, as Paul has been arguing for it, is a thing done on behalf of the sinner by an outside party. The sinner's not a free agent. He's powerless to justify himself. He has been justified by another, a greater than himself. Just as Paul wrote to the Ephesians when he said this, And you he made alive who were dead. You he made alive who were dead. The dead don't make themselves alive. Lazarus didn't call himself out of the tomb, right? Jesus didn't say, go to the tomb and say, Lazarus, make a decision for me. He said, Lazarus, come forth. He said, Brenda, come forth. Russ, come forth. Daniel, come forth. The Lord called you specifically and by name. And you came. You know why? You had to. God commanded it. It's called irresistible grace. Could you imagine... Jesus saying, roll the stone away, saying, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus saying, no, thank you, Lord. I prefer to remain dead. 
Could he have done that? It's unthinkable. You're here because you were called. And called means called. It's done to you. It's imposed on you without your permission. You don't believe me? Ask Saul of Tarsus, who was going to kill all the Christians. We'll get to that too. And so you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. The dead must be made alive, for he cannot bring himself to life. We could close there, so obvious. But let me parse the thing a little more perfectly for you. The reason the question as to sinning that grace may abound is reprehensible to the believer is not because he left one philosophy for another more wholesome philosophy. Is that what we did? Well, I left my old teaching behind. I took on new teaching. I remember one time we were at a, at a conference at one of our old churches. We had a speaker, very zealous evangelist, and he was telling us, and one of the reasons we better start evangelizing is the Jehovah's Witnesses are beating us. They're getting all the converts. And when it was over, I asked him, I hadn't heard that Jehovah's Witnesses had any converts. So what are you talking about? There's hundreds, there's thousands of them. I said, no, there isn't. There's none. They're not making any converts. They're convincing someone that this is the right way. That's, they can't convert them. You, only the gospel can convert them. All you did is convince them. Let's go and unconvince them. You're not here because you're convinced. You're here because you've been changed in the twinkling of an eye. You've been reborn. That's what he said to Nicodemus. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. He didn't say, see the kingdom of God over there? Get born again so you can go in it. You can't see it. You're blind to it. You're dead in trespasses and sin, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. So you didn't change one philosophy for another. I mean, you did, but it's because it's a result of your actual change, your spiritual change, your rebirth. It, friend, friends, it's because you left one realm of existence for another realm of existence. The first realm of existence has a name. It's called death. You're not in death anymore. You're not a candidate for death. Oh, yeah, your body will die. We know that. But absent from the body, present with the Lord, your body will die. But you're not in the camp of death anymore because grace already abounded in that camp and delivered you out of it. Friends, either a man is in this realm or this realm. There's only two realms. There's Adam and there's Christ. And you can't have one foot in each. Now, some people try to do that, but they're really in the realm of Adam. Either a man is in Adam or he's in Christ. Either he's the offspring of dead Adam or the offspring of a living Christ. The question is moot because it cannot possibly apply to the believer who's been translated into a new realm. The question is moot to the true believer, shall we sin that grace may abound. You've been translated into the realm of the living. Sin has no place there. Paul said in just those terms to the Colossians, he said... He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. He puts you on a conveyor. You ever go to the airport these days? And you come out and the people are walking down the middle, but there's conveyors on the sides going this way. You get on the conveyor. You don't even have to walk. You're being conveyed, right? You're being taken to heaven on that conveyor. You're delivered from darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. It's just you're on the conveyor belt. It's a beautiful word. And they didn't even have conveyors back then. In other words, you were redeemed. You didn't redeem yourself. Redeem means bought back. You can't buy yourself back. You don't have the money. 
because the, because the currency is the blood of Christ, right? You don't have that. You can't buy yourself. Christ has to use his currency to buy you. So Paul made the point again in verse 18 where he said, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. The free gift of life. If you're justified, it's due to the one act of the one man, Jesus Christ, in your behalf. It had nothing to do with how much or how little you sinned or plan on sinning. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with how much or how little you strove to put away sin. Your justification was bought at a price, and the price was the one act of the one man, and you are not that man. It's another man. And so you are redeemed in spite of the abounding sin and the life of sin that you've lived. You're saved in spite of it. The Jews didn't like that doctrine because all their life they strove or or pretended to strive under the law, right? They didn't like that these Gentiles went to the head of the line. These people sacrifice other people. How could they be ahead of us? These people celebrate pantheons of gods and goddesses. How could they enter in ahead of us? So Paul argues for this. So you're redeemed in spite of your abounding sins and the life of sin that you've lived. Sin abounded in your life, and no roster of sins is great enough to blot out the saving power of grace. And so it's a natural conclusion to presume that where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. It would have had to. And at the same time, it's a monstrous conclusion again to say that a man ought to sin so that grace may abound. Why? Why is it so monstrous? Paul gives us the answer. Verse 2. Now the old version says, God forbid, how shall we who died to sin live it any longer? It's a mistranslation, but I like it. And it doesn't do any harm to the text. but But the real translation is certainly not. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it? any longer. That's the question you're supposed to ask. That's the conclusion you're supposed to come to. The free gift, friends, was a death of the old man in Adam. The justification was a death, right? You're buried, in, you're baptized into Christ's death, he's going to say later, right? Did you not know when you were baptized, you were baptized into his death? You were immersed in the death of Christ. So you emerged in the resurrection of Christ, his life for yours. And here, here it is. How shall we who died to sin? Did you die to sin? Friends, the answer is yes, pastor. I died to sin. I came to Christ. That's the answer. So, oh, no, I still have some trouble. No, that's not the answer. That's not the answer. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. That's the answer. How shall you live in sin any longer? Fraught with peril, isn't it? He's teaching sinless perfection. Oh, you're all so worried I won't qualify it. You're right, I won't. The whole matter is no longer a mere question of desire or decision. It's no longer. How shall we who died to sin? Did you kill yourself? No, Christ crucified you. You died to sin. It's no longer a decision. It's no longer a desire. Well, I just don't like sinning anymore. I grew out of it. It's a question of a new nature, friends. It's not a new philosophy. You weren't just convinced. You weren't argued into the faith. You were changed. 
Someone might have argued, I might have tried to argue into the faith, but it was God that changed you. I had no power to do it. The farmer plants the seed and God gives growth. It's there, there it is, right? It's a question of nature. If you followed the gospel teaching from the text, you know that your entire nature has been changed when justification came upon you by the power of the blood of Christ. That's how it happens. Friends, shall the butterfly crawl along the leaf stem as in his prior life as a caterpillar? Should the butterfly just crawl along like the worm he used to be? Or should he soar and flutter about, breathing the free air of his new and wonderful nature? Isn't that what the butterfly does? For the worm to crawl, it's only natural. For the moth to soar is natural as well, but shall the moth crawl that grace may abound? It's ridiculous. Soar. You're dead to sin. It's time to soar. That's the function of his old nature to crawl. He doesn't crawl anymore. He flies. To the Corinthians, he said it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Friends, if this apostle is anything, he is consistent from epistle to epistle. From Romans to Ephesians to Corinthians 1 and 2 to Philippians, and I'll get to them all. And with his friend, the apostle John is consistent as well. This is the question that the saint must ask of himself. Not, shall we sin that grace may abound? But how shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? That's our question. Your sin nature is dead, friends. It has died. Christ killed it on the cross. Is that a dangerous doctrine? We know it is. Can it lead to uncharted waters? Of course it can. And the apostle knows that it can. But still he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the only power of God to salvation. And there's no other message that carries the same power. Put away all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, James 1.21. Very consistent. I know you're wondering what I'll do with the implication here of sinless perfection. The pastor said we're dead to sin. Now, the rightly oriented believer knows sinless perfection is unattainable in this life, don't we? To that I'll say that on the one hand, to justify, uh, on the one hand, rather, no rightly oriented believer may denounce the reality of his new nature by the justifying power of the blood of Christ. In other words, when you sin, you don't say, I must not have the new nature. I'm obviously not dead to sin. I still sin. But at the same time, no rightly oriented believer can say that it's beyond the realm of human experience for a creature to act out of the realm of his nature. You can act out of the realm of his nature. Why? Because now you're free to. When you were dead, you couldn't act as a righteous person, but as a righteous person, you're free to act as an unrighteous person. Adam did, right? And I'm not saying you're like old Adam. You're, you're, you have a much better deal than Adam had. So what am I saying? One, I'm saying that the Scripture is completely consistent on this point. Recall John on the same point. 1 John 3, 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Very consistent, isn't it? I could qualify the heck out of that, but there's no need to, and I'll show you why. Recall the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Are you a slave of sin? I can feel the anxiety in the room. Notice I wrote that in the notes. 
I could already feel it. It's pulsing. It's pulsing. I'm, I'm sitting there at the, at the computer writing it going, they, they, they can't stand it. They, they want me to qualify it. They want a way around this inescapable conclusion. But I'll not qualify what the text does not qualify. I'll only point out to you that if you are justified, you will be glorified. And sin can't stop the process. Again, we'll get to it in chapter 8. If you're justified, you will be glorified. The job is already done, friends. Right? The accelerant's already put in the compound. It's going to explode. And so we may wait until we arrive at chapter 8 in order for us to see that the process of justification cannot be stopped and the Spirit of God is there as a guarantee that all those who are justified will be glorified and that it's because they had a new nature thrust upon them by the grace of God. For where sin abounded in the sinner, grace abounded to the glory of God. Now, if you like, I can give you an illustration. I've adapted it a little from Lloyd-Jones. Jesus spoke of slavery, being a slave of sin, didn't he? He who sins is a slave of sin. It's very succinct. And he doesn't go in and say, well, I don't really mean slave and I don't really mean sin. He doesn't do that. You know, we always want that because we're afraid, because we're ashamed of the, of the gospel of Christ. We, wa- we don't want to say it the way it says it because it might mean something else. Paul doesn't harbor that fear with us. Let it be misunderstood and then explain it. You know, it's like we, we want the rule. We don't want the rule. We want the exception. Wives, be ye submissive unto your husbands. As to the Lord. Well, what if he's really bad? Well, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the rule. The exception will take care of itself in another series. All right? So Jesus spoke of slavery. He who sins is a slave of sin. Let's consider the slave, friend. Consider the slave who's made free by edict of government. I know one. His name's Paul. Paul was a citizen by an act of government. Right? We know this, right? You know Paul's status. He was a He was a free man in the empire. He had rights, right? But he had to proclaim those rights or they weren't just naturally given to him. He was in chains that he should not have been in. Agrippa said, had you not appealed to Caesar, you wouldn't be in chains. So consider the slave. Consider the slave who's made free by a government edict. He's a free man. He may even have a document. Some of the American slaves carried a document with them. You know what the the, uh, slave... Traders did, you know, it was what was called the Fugitive Slave Act. Anybody know about that? You could hunt down the, the slave and bring him back to his... Even if he's in a free state, you could hunt him down and bring him back. That, that was one of the most abominable laws on the American uh, justice system. But what did the slave trader do when he found the slave? He ripped up the document. You're not free anymore. The man's just as free as he was before the document got ripped up. Right? It didn't change his nature by the other world intruding into that world. Right? So he's a free man. He has a document declaring his new free status. Yet somewhere in his old thoughts, he hears the voice of his old master calling him. And in his flesh, he fears the voice of his old taskmasters and torturers. And he fears what in the new status of his being, he need not fear. He's just remembering the old status. He's falling prey to it. It's calling him. And he may even fall to it. But it can't change the process. He's dead to sin. It has no hold on him. You see what I'm saying? And yet he succumbs to the fear and he acts as a slave acts. The free man can act as a slave acts. He can do that. Why? Because he's free. And the courage it takes to be a free man is not fully formed in him yet. He needs practice. 
There are forces out there vying to assure that the former slave never takes full advantage of his new free man status. And so the battle for his peace goes on until he may break free and assert himself for what he is. So why does the saint still sin? It's because he's a practice sinner and he's an unpracticed saint. He needs teaching. He needs a church. He needs a series on Romans. Paul acknowledges this dynamic in chapter 7. He writes of this very thing. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. I'm not used to doing what is good. I'm not used to even hearing what is good. And what is bad keeps calling me back. That's why you sin. But you're not under the rule or realm or reign of sin anymore. You have power over it. It's like Saul of Tarsus who was stricken on the road by the justifier-in-chief. How's that for a name? The (laughs) justifier-in-chief. He struck him on the road, knocked him right off his horse. There's no horse in in the story, but in all the great Renaissance art, there's always a horse, so let's put a horse in it. It doesn't hurt anything. No. No, Saul, still, by by the way, the Jews didn't ride horses very much. (laughs) That was sort of a Roman, Egyptian thing. Saul, still breathing threats and murder, (coughs) excuse me, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he goes to the high priest so he can bring back all the Jews who converted to, to Christ right? And he gets an edict, a paper from the high priest so he can legally do that. The only thing is, the only thing that happened wrongly, it wasn't really the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. And he came in and rescinded that order. He gave an executive order, a real one. So here's the unjustified elect, Paul. He's elect, but he's not justified, right? He's unjustified elect, acting in accordance with his own nature. That's just Paul acting like Paul, Saul of Tarsus, right? But then, of a sudden, something happens to him over which his sin nature had no power. He couldn't resist it. A light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so the voice of the Lord said to him, and this is now in Acts 26 where he's telling the story to Agrippa for the second time, right? Jesus said, I now send you to open the eyes of the blind in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by by faith in me. So forgiveness of sins is only the passive part of justification. The inheritance, the growing up in grace, the fruit of the Spirit, That's the inheritance. That's the positive, active side of justification. It doesn't stop with forgiveness. It's not like death. Death just stops. Life produces. It goes on. And so the voice said to him that I send you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And he didn't say no. He said how? (laughs) You don't automatically know how. But he picked a man who had some knowledge, had some education, had some training, had some zeal, lived a hard life, wasn't afraid. Paul was not afraid to live a hard life. Writing to the Philippians, is in prison. I rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. He's a guy's in prison. 
So the greatest sinner and persecutor of the church became the greatest apologist and teacher of that very institution. The great sinner became the great saint. The great hater became the greatest lover. The man of violence became the man of peace. Indeed, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more in love. Amen? Like Paul, all those who are justified by Christ have a new nature and a new mission. They are the vehicles of the gospel. That's what you are. You're the vehicle of the gospel. It's in you. And you're carting it around and spewing it out at the proper time and with the proper teaching and with a balanced understanding of all these things. And don't be afraid to preach the free gift. And don't be afraid to preach the new nature. So they're the vehicles of the gospel and the bearers of the justifying power of Christ. And it's not all passive, as I said. In other words, our justification is not only about forgiveness of sin. That's the initial mission of grace. It's about the inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith. All the promises of God are mine and yours. Grace abounds in the saint, friends. It's a positive, life-producing force that wells up into rivers of living water, Jesus said. And the informed saint grows more and more in grace. That's the great difference between death and life. Death is just an end. There's no fruit from death. It's just an end. It's a decay. There's no fruit from his existence. But life, life is a force that grows and abounds more and more with each new season of light. And light is the knowledge of God. You feed yourself with light, and light is knowledge. All throughout the epistles of John, light is knowledge. And so the former saint, the slave of sin, has become a new creature. Grace abounded. And so Paul may write to the church, he once persecuted. And I close with this. To the Philippians he said, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. O Father, implant these truths in our hearts that we not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ and that we know that it is the only power unto salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen.